Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, who's a little bit allergenic today, Ed. The pollen count is high despite the snow content. Ed, you look like you're about to sneeze. Um, well, actually, you're not wrong. I, I didn't mention this, so it's, I, I must look especially bad, or you must be especially observant. I'm just especially, especially sort of sensitive and attenuated to you and your needs. It's just the kind of person that I am, I, and I don't need that. I don't need that from you, um, but it, it's just just who I am, you know. It's why you're such a such a caring and nurturing person to work with. I thought you were going to say such a bang up podcast host. Oh, that too. Um, <laughs> but no, the I'm pollen count looks like today. it's getting you. No, it's not the pollen count. It's actually, um, I mean, I just have bad sinuses, so I'm, I'm forever battling something. But no, this time of year, it's actually forced air. It's um, it's like, internal heating that is, that's setting me off. Oh, um, you know what? You probably need your ducts cleaned. Maybe. I just, what's wrong with radiators? I don't understand. I don't know what's wrong with radiators. Although, long story, uh, when I was, I guess, about seven I um, dropped a radiator on my grandmother's wrist and it broke. And uh, so I... The radiator or the wrist? No, <laughs> the wrist broke. The wrist broke. Oh, the okay. radiator. I suppose the radiator broke as well in that I think it probably snapped. But w- one way or another, I've always felt you know, very terrible about that. Although she was very forgiving and it was obviously an accident. I was seven. Uh, nevertheless, I've always felt very badly about that. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I could ask immediately a dozen questions about we were how looking a seven-year-old for something. Carrying, no, we, no, no, no. No, I wasn't carrying the radiator. For God's sake, I'm not made out of um, the sort of muscles that allow a seven-year-old to carry a cast-iron radiator around the house. No, we were looking for something that would like we were going to go to the I don't know. We were going to go to the paper mill playhouse. That's where we usually went with my grandma. We were going to go to the paper mill playhouse, which was a local theater, and. Um, we couldn't go until we found, you know, my sister's shoes or some other such nonsense. And so I was looking behind the radiator and my grandma. So I kind of pulled the radiator away from the wall a little bit to look behind it. And my grandma came over and told me not to pull the radiator away from the wall because it could be dangerous and um, put her hand out to kind of grab the radiator. And in so doing, she startled me. And that was that. So it's really her fault. Is what I'm, I'm not saying it is her fault. I am not saying it is her fault. It, I'm not saying it's her fault. I... Began by saying I dropped the radiator, and I am happy to concede that I shouldn't have been playing, on, you know, playing with the radiator or looking behind the radiator at all. But that's what's wrong with radiators. That is, you can break your grandma's wrist. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, okay. Can I can I say something before we kick off? Because I know you you always have a, a hidden plan for these podcasts. But before we get started, just I want to you were quizzing me about um, football last week. I was quizzing you about football and and the Super Bowl. I was quizzing you about the Super Bowl. Did we have a quiz about the Super Bowl? That I don't no, know. not an actual quiz, but I mean, we were discussing it. And I offered the opinion that perhaps people enjoyed the experience of watching football more than actually watching the game itself. And you you kind of made fun of me a little bit <clears throat> and accused me of making a distinction without a difference. And I pushed back on that a little bit. And anyway, but what I want to say is on, on the strength of last week's podcast and Newsletter, I was invited to a Super Bowl party. Oh, you were? I, because you told people I, that you had never watched the Super Bowl or been invited to a Super Bowl yeah. party or otherwise and been here's had the sort of thing. normal American social experiences. Exactly. And so I went and had a what I assumed to be a perfectly normal American social experience based who, around... Who invited you to a Super Bowl party? Uh, someone someone who lives nearby. I'm not... I, I'm not what I'm curious about is this. Was it someone that you already knew? Yes. Oh, okay. So it wasn't... Um, it would... It, it wasn't that someone who you'd never met before heard the show and said, come to the Super Bowl party. 
um, it was that someone you already knew said, hey, it sounds like I was listening to the show and you have no plans to come to the Super Bowl party. Yes, that's okay. pretty much what happened. Um, but here's the thing. I think... I, I just want to clarify one thing. I would go to a Super Bowl party um, if I were invited by a listener who I didn't know. And I suspect you would, too. I'm not saying I wouldn't go if, 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 if um, you know, I was invited by someone who I didn't already know. I mean, by all means, invite me to whatever you would like to invite me to. I'll... I'll go. I mean, I don't have a lot going on. No, that's that's true. Um, <laughs> well done. Anyway, the the point I wanted to make was everyone left after the halftime show, and nobody watched the game at everyone all. Everyone at your party left after the halftime show. Yeah, I mean, you were watching were football and... with weird people. No, I wasn't watching football. I was watching football with what I would assume any reasonable person would concede are real Americans. I have never and been to a the Super day Bowl was party spent when people leave preparing <clears throat> meat. There was some. There was an an informal competition of the frying of foods. Uh, I I made a pork shoulder, um, and you know it was a very nice day. But it had almost nothing to do with the actual watching of the game. The Super Bowl was, as I hypothesized, just an excuse for everyone to get together. No one actually watched it. I think I I saw um, bits of the halftime show through a window while I was outside smoking, and uh, that was about as close to the action as I got. I. Did the baby go? Yeah. I just don't know about... I don't know why I asked if the baby went, to be perfectly honest. I don't know where I was going with that. She wasn't interested either. I'm happy that the baby got to see her first American Super Bowl. Um, But I just... I've never been to a Super Bowl party where everyone leaves after the half and no one watches the football. I mean, sure, some people don't watch the football. They're in another room or they're standing in the back of the room talking. But usually people are watching the football. And then what happens often is everyone sort of, some people are watching the football, some people are talking, and then the commercials come on and then people, you know, sort of, hush, you got to be quiet because of the commercials. And it's like they didn't mind talking over the game, but you got to be quiet because of the commercials. And then everyone sort of hushes to watch the commercials. And then and then people who are not watching the game spend the next section of the game talking about the, whether the commercials were funny or not. And I got to say, not very many funny commercials in this particular Super Bowl. Would you agree? I don't know. I wasn't paying attention. But you're, you're only... Um, adding further credence to my arguments from last week, which is I said the only reason people actually watch the game is to watch the commercials, and nobody actually cares about the action. So you're you're backing up even more. So I'm feeling vindicated in my. I did not in, say the only people people reason people watch the game is to watch the commercials. I said some people watch the game and some people watch the commercials. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, did you enjoy? I watched. Did you enjoy? I the game? I watched the game. I thought it was a fine game. Who won? Uh, what's that? Who won? I don't know. The Rams of Los Angeles. Oh, well, that's a shame. Um, you were rooting for the Cincinnati's. Yeah, I you know, Ohio over California is a no-brainer. Um, okay, fair enough. Uh, so th- that's good. Good for you. Did you enjoy the halftime show? There were some there were some favorite um, musicians of ours. I did enjoy the halftime show. There were favorite musicians of ours, and uh, we enjoyed them. Afterwards, someone said to me, oh, I didn't really like the way that women were objectified in it, and I hadn't noticed that, but then it turned out apparently during the, the, the performance of 50 Cent, there, was, there were women who were scantily clad. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't notice but I, I i had to take the garbage out so maybe i took the garbage out then and the recycling as well and then i just missed that or something like that because it didn't register in my mind oh wow there was a lot of that night and but on the whole um i want to make that caveat in case I, so i don't get but on the whole yeah i thought it was a good halftime show and a lot of magi- musicians who we um like you and i i i found it to be a curate's egg okay you found it, it to be good. a curate's egg yes good in parts a curate's egg is good in parts Yes. Now, Ed, I, as you might know, uh, I'm from America. Um, I know what a curate is. A curate is effectively an Anglican pastor. Um, and I know what an egg is. It is an, 
Well, unfertilized or fertilized ova, I suppose. Um, I know what an egg is. And I think most people do. I, I must admit, I don't know what a curate's egg is or what it has to do with the Super Bowl. You, you really want me? Okay. Um, it, it is a it is a stock phrase when you are describing I'm sure it's idiomatic, yeah. But what is it? it, 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 it there's a, a sort of stock 19th century cartoon of a curate having And a curate brunch. is a, an Anglican pastor. I'm correct yes. about that. Okay. Having brunch with his bishop and... Uh, Hold bishop. on. Bishop. I mean, it's... Yeah. I, I air quoted bishops because, of course, we don't believe that um, Anglicans uh, have valid orders, although that's not very ecumenical of me, and I know we have very many Anglican listeners, and I don't need to be... So anyway, with his with his bishop, uh, I apologize there, Anglicans, with his bishop, he was having an egg. Was it a soft-boiled egg on one of those things? It was a quail's egg, J.D. A quail's anyway, egg? Was it on one of those... Oh, my... <laughs> You make everything interminable. Well, we got to fill an hour here, man. God, this is like an NFL broadcast. It's just all interruptions <laughs> and tedium. Um, the point of the stock cartoon is that the curate is eating a rotten egg for the meal, and the bishop inquires, are you enjoying your breakfast? He says, oh, yes, it's very good in parts. Ah, I see. The idea being that he's too polite to say no, the egg is in fact rotten. Right, reverend host, I'm afraid you've got a bad egg, Mr. Jones, the curate. Oh, no, my lord, I assure you, parts of it are excellent. True Humility by George de Maurier, originally published in Punch, 9 November 1895. There you are. Punch is a magazine. It has a correspondent magazine called Judy, and they're both about English puppet shows. That's not true. Um, Anyway. So I found the Super Bowl halftime show to be a curate's egg. I I enjoyed Dr. Dre and Snoop. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, we didn't, yeah. It's always nice to see them. Um, I, I've i never much cared for 50 Cent, so I didn't care for his performance. I was ambivalent, as I've always been, about Mary J. Blige. Um, I did not care for Eminem's contribution to the affair. Uh, he, he didn't seem to get it. I would have wished that Mary J. Blige had sung a different song, and I would have yes. wished that Eminem had sung a different song. So this is exactly what and Eminem really got any wrong. other song. Mm-hmm. Well, this is the thing: is this is the difference. Um, this is why it was nice to see Dre and Snoop, and Eminem was a total bust on this. Is Dre and Snoop understand? I mean, Snoop has got a TV show with Martha Stewart now, for goodness' sake, and Dre is a billionaire. Like they both understand that there is a certain amount of high camp to them rolling out their '90s shtick of being edgy. Rap artists. Sure, because now they're... Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Snoop is basically, you know, a a staple of the suburban middle class at this point. And they get it. And so there's a certain amount of high camp. And Snoop has done a fair amount of self-parody kind of stuff. You know, kind of rolled out a line of faux shizzled, you know, energy drinks and whatnot, you know, for quite some time now. Yeah. Whereas Eminem's good or best... Work, I would argue. Not not all of it. Very little that I call good, but his better received work. You care for Eminem. Huh? You like the music of Eminem. I, I, I liked his first two albums, but here's the thing. The Marshall Mathers LP and the Slim Shady LP didn't take themselves seriously at all. The whole shtick of right, Eminem right, right, right. was, I dare you to take me seriously. Yeah. I'm not really. I'm joking. Mm-hmm. I'm making fun of you. And his whole Super Bowl halftime show down to the song selection is a guy in his 40s demanding to be taken seriously. Yeah. And, and it just, it fell flat. He doesn't I, I, get it. I understand that. Yeah, I would have wished that, that, that uh, much as I sort of enjoyed sure that Eminem came, I would have wished that Slim Shady had come, as it were. And, um, but he doesn't understand that that's, that that's his market. Like his market has, oh, his market now is, he's not trying, you know, there's no market for him to be an edgy, gritty, take a knee rep of the culture. Was like, that's not who he is. He's appealing, his appeal, the reason they booked him and everyone else is this a sort of sop to 90s 
cultural right, nostalgia. And I mean, at this point, Eminem is, whether he likes it or not, effectively playing to the same market as NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys. But he should have said, hi, my name is, hi, my name is, what my name is. Exactly. And, yeah. but, you know, I, but I'll tell you what I find amazing about this, that is that this is a fellow, you, as you say, um, Eminem doesn't know his market. Um, Eminem, you and I each week come on this podcast and earnestly suggest to people who enjoy listening to us that perhaps they would be willing to subscribe to uh, our little media endeavor at $5 a month. And um, should enough of them um, continue to subscribe to our little media endeavor at $5 a month, um, we will be able to pay our mortgages. Eminem uh, makes more money eating breakfast in the morning than we would need to run the pillar for years. So there's certainly some way in which Eminem understands his market um, and has... Uh, found a way to um, as a as a as a uh, a figure in the world of media and entertainment, which I would draw a line between them. But nevertheless, as a figure in the world of media and entertainment, has learned something about how to build and sustain a market. Um, I'm not saying we that... disagree. He understood his market very well when he first started. The problem is he no longer understands it. This know. is the thing. He doesn't get that he's a nostalgia act now. He doesn't get that what he should really be doing, what Eminem's true market right now is, is as an Eminem tribute act. That's. He hasn't moved with, he's, he doesn't realize that he's aged. Do you think someday we're going to be a pillar tribute act and people oh, are just going to want make the it show that far. I to really be, do. just, we talk about, um, uh, uh, Gwen Stefani's, you know, wedding chapel and sets. They're like, play the hits. Just talk about the wedding chapel thing. If, if this little project survives that long that we can become caricatures of ourselves, I will be a very, very Well, happy you know man. what would make it survive that long, dear listeners, is your <laughs> ongoing commitment to subscribe to The Pillar and help us to sustain this media project as we move forward in our efforts to serve the church, to serve the kingdom of God um, through uh, journalism and quality, quality podcasting. Do you know what would make me sleep better at night? What's that? If, dear listener, your credit card details changed <laughs> in the last year and you just updated them, like if you that were to alone. update them, If you were to update them, that would be helpful so that when it's time to renew your subscription, um, your subscription will renew and that will allow us to continue doing the work of The Pillar. Again, uh, PillarCatholic.com slash subscribe and we thank you. I did not intend this to be a commercial, but it turned out to be a pretty decent one. It's worked out all right. Yeah, okay. Uh, let's talk about things that are happening in the church because a lot of interesting things happened in the church this week. And uh, one of them um, is that the Pope on... Tuesday, uh, was it Tuesday? It was Tuesday. Yeah, the Pope on Tuesday made a bunch of changes to the Codex Juris Canonici, the Code of Canon Law, and yeah, um, both codes, in fact, mm-hmm, the uh, the Code of Canons of the Eastern Churches as well, which is the Universal Canon Law for the um, for the Eastern Catholic Churches in communion with Rome, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, the three the Ruthenian Greek Catholic Church, the Coptic Catholic Church, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, the uh, each of which, by the way, has it also has its own um, proper law. Well, do they have? Do, do the churches two years have proper law or particular? Law? I can't remember now. Well, uh, proper um, law is proper to person, so I suppose it's particular. Law. Yeah, I think it's particular. Okay, law. each I of mean, which has there are churches, but individual churches, according to the language, the legal language of the church, a diocese is a particular church. Right, right, right. I law. just I couldn't remember if we use the same language when we talked about the Eastern Church, if we talked about proper law. But each of which has its own body of law as well, uh, which governs sort of the many things which the Eastern Code is kind of deferential to. Um, but the Pope made some changes to the um, Code of Canon Law and the Code of Canons for the Eastern Churches. And uh, what were those changes sort of aimed at, Ed? What was the point? Well, the unifying theme, as it was given, was promoting the principle of subsidiarity. That's right. The Pope said, look, I'm a subsidiarity guy, and I've talked a lot about kind of healthy decentralization in the life of the church. So what I'm going to do this uh, week is to make a lot of little, mo- mostly little changes in the Code of Canon Law that I think will better promote 
the, the notion of, uh, of, of healthy decentralization and subsidiarity. Subsidiarity yes. is what? Subsidiarity is the principle uh, in justice and in efficiency in law that decisions should be made uh, at the level closest to those affected as possible. That is a frequently given definition for, of subsidiarity with which I quibble, and I'll tell you why. The uh, definition imagine of, my surprise. <laughs> the definition of, subsidi of subsidiarity that I prefer is the one which says that um, decisions should be made at the level most proper to the decisions themselves and that um, institutions of a higher order have an obligation to support um, and uh, enable the legitimate authority of institutions of a lower, lower order. So it's not just... A lot of people, I think, describe subsidiarity as like localism, like, well, the more things done at the local level, the better. Um, subsidiarity doesn't say that. Subsidiarity says some things are best done at the local level. How much, you know, when should we repave the streets of your town? Some things are best done at a higher level. Should we um, intervene in, in, in a Russian incursion of Ukraine, right? That decision is not well made by um, the city of Littleton in which I live or the city of blank in which you live um so well, it's definitely not it's definitely not well made in the city of washington where i live i can assure you almost no decisions are well made in the city of washington right exactly well sure but give me the thing here not not not, not most proper to uh, the point is that decision is not sort of proper to the city government or a family as an, you know a, a, a singular family but it's most proper to sort of the nation itself uh I, I think it's important not to sort of devolve into the sort of localist definition of subsidiarity, because um, there is a place for an overarching national government. And in the life of the church, there is a, a, a place for um, the exercise of authority of the Roman pontiff. It's just the discernment of which things are appropriate to the exercise of discernment of the Roman pontiff, which things are appropriate to the discernment of the diocesan bishop or the provincial superior, and which to the pastor, local superior, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, that's my little rant about subsidiarity. <laughs> So uh, <laughs> you got to say something so we can keep moving the show. That's what works uh, the ball. Okay. What would you like me to start saying so that you can interrupt for another oh, five minutes? Oh, come on. Don't be sensitive. That's silly. I'm not being sensitive. Be sensitive. I'm trying to be sympathetic to our listeners. You think our listeners mind that we clarified what subsidiarity is? No, but I think they've forgotten what we were talking about. What we were talking about before we start. Okay, that's great. So that'll be my transition. Well, what we were talking about, Ed, before I made that clarification about subsidiarity was this pope, the Pope's decision um, to make some canonical changes in light of the principle of subsidiarity. Is that right? Indeed. Yeah. Yes, I okay. think that is fair. And <clears throat> I, I would say some of the changes uh, are, I don't want to say niche, but they are, they are discrete changes. They are yes. changes to parts of the church's life that do not have universal effect. So, for example, changes to the way in which members of religious communities could be exclaustrated or, um, you know, expelled from their community. What's exclaustrated? Sorry? Exclaustration is? It's basically being quite literally kicked out of the cloister. Um, or or uh, do you think kicked out or allowed to be out of the cloister, being out of the cloister? I think it's it can be either, depending on the circumstances. Oh, sometimes right. it can be given permission to go. Sometimes it can mean you're gone. You need to take some time. Yes. But there's a um, distinction between exclaustration and expulsion is the point I was trying to make. Oh, I see. Yes, fine. Mm -hmm. yes. Expulsion means you're out of the religious order. Exclaustration generally means you're taking a, 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 something of a break from religious life in order to discern or because your parents are sick and there's no one else to take care of them or um, you're thinking about joining a different religious community or so, something like that. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, there are, there are aspects of these reforms that came out on Tuesday which sort of had, had that sort of slant to them, that they aren't going to impinge upon or influence the sort of ordinary parish or diocesan life of the church anymore. 
Um, which isn't to say they aren't important and they aren't very important to the people for whom they do have application, but you know, they're, they're, and, and there was, um, there were a couple of occasions in the code where according to this new boat proprio, actually I have a gripe before we do this. Good. Okay. Can go I complain ahead. about something? No, you seem like you need to get, you definitely seem like you need to get something off your chest. I'm really annoyed about this. Uh, where I need, I need you to be here, you know? We have had a couple of motu proprios this week, or motis proprii. Um, Actually, someone recently told me that the plural of motu proprio is motu proprio. Okay. But, so we've had a few of them this week. And they've been promulgated in Italian. Yeah, which is not the legal language of the church. Motu proprio is our official legal, legal document of the church. Yes. Now, it's not to say the Pope can't choose to promulgate law in Italian if he wants. It does carry with it problems. The Pope could promulgate seen. law in Elvish if he wants. He's the Pope. Yes. Um, there, I mean, there are problems if you don't use Latin, because then there are questions of translation. And the whole reason that the church has a universal legal language is because then there isn't debate about what the words mean in translation in different places. That's all been settled. But anyway, th- these things have come out in Italian, and one of them has a Latin in Chipit, mm-hmm. believe it or not. And one of them has an Italian in Chipit. And this drives me Crazy. What is an incipit for those who are oh, sorry? I'm, maybe I'm misusing the, 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 the no, title. No, no, you're using take, it correctly. The, yeah, the, from the, the, first, the, the first, the first few words of a of a, most yeah. church documents are what its title is. So, for example, the first uh, few words of um, of, uh, of of Lumen Gentium are the light of the nations. Da, 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 you know, and so yes. um, the first few words are um, are the title in Latin, generally speaking. Yes. So one has a Latin incipit, which is the first few words of the thing in Latin, even though the document was written in Italian, and doesn't have a Latin translation available. Right. And another one has an Italian one, which is actually just the first few words in Italian of the thing. And I mean, this is... Why does that drive you crazy, Edward? Because it's, it's madness, J.D. <laughs> this is chaos. This it is bo- chaos. It bothers me too. In the, it bothers me too in the, in the way that it bothers me when sort of things, you know, when a picture is somewhat, is just slightly askew, you know what I mean? And and it's like, it's like mounted to the wall slightly askew. It's not even that it has fallen askew. It's like someone screwed it on, you know, at a weird angle. And that's just how it's going to be. It bothers me in that way that it's not all lined up. It's, it's, no, but the so far they to bothered to give a Latin title to one means that like, well, we know these things normally, you know, have Latin titles and we haven't written it in Latin and it doesn't exist in Latin and it's not being promulgated in Latin, but we'll just give it one because it sounds like, but it won't even be consistent enough to do that with the next one that comes out the next day. I mean, it's, you know what? Another thing that happened is we had One a, job, we, people. An, another thing that happened Ed, is we had this motu proprio that came out. As long as we're sort of talking about not the substance but the process of promulgating this law, um, we had a set of laws come out today. And um, what did you notice was missing, sort of procedurally from from those, other than a Latin editio typica? Wait, laws that came out today? No, excuse me, that came out this week. I, I apologize. Oh, I see. Um, uh, any vocatio legis? Vocatio legis, yeah. Gosh, yeah, don't even get me started so on what that. Is a These things don't take immediate effect. What is a vocatio? A vocatio legis is the period of time after the promulgation of a law, or between the promulgation of a law and when the law comes to effect. The idea is that everyone then has a chance to gear up for the new law coming into force and understand And how get ready for it and everything. So usually when a law comes out, the law will be promulgated and um, and, and, and say... This law takes effect one month from today, or this law takes effect on March the 1st, or whatever, so that you have time to get ready for it. But that didn't happen. No. In fact, no. the thing said, this law takes effect today. Yeah. Now, what's and, really and interesting where was it promulgated? Uh, it was promulgated in Rome, I presume. Oh, in Liservatory Romano instead of the Liservatory Act Apostolic Gazettus, which is the sort of official promulgation text of the church. Well, now, here's something really interesting to me about the Vocatio thing. Okay. 
the laws were promulgated at noon um, on Tuesday, right? Right. They say these laws take effect today. They were actually signed, you know, not on that day, but they were signed a few days before, right? So mm-hmm. if you um, if you were a major superior who attempted to give exclaustration for a period of five years to a religious um, bef- at 11 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday, could you have done it? No. No, because the law what? Had not been promulgated. It the was law not had not been promulgated, but I don't think the document says that it was issued at noon, which raises a real question in the future if there's going to be sort of analysis of a, a complex legal situation that hinges upon when exactly a law took force. It, it, I, yeah, it, the whole thing is a mess. I, it's what it is. Is um, what it is, and the reason why Ed and I are kvetching about this is um, because law uh, exists in any society, including the society of the church, for the sake of order. And um, part of the way that you um, part of the way that you promote good order is to have sort of consistency in the promulgation and form of laws, so that there aren't sort of um, weird little incidental questions that need to be meted out with every single particular law. You can sort of count on the fact that this is how laws work, and um, this is how e- each of the laws work, and this is how each of the laws is is um, is promulgated and begins to take effect and is tracked and those kinds of things. And the value of that is that again, there won't be sort of conflicts over. Uh, you know, potential conflicts over weird little, you know, curiosities down the road. Um, law exists um, for a couple of reasons. One, law exists to help us to know what's good and to choose it, um, you know, and therefore to be more free. But also, um, law exists um, for the inevitability that a synergistic and positive relationship will at some time become contentious. And um, and in anticipation of contention, it, it tries to tries to provide as much clarity, objective clarity for all sides of a contentious issue um, in order to be able to meet out the substance of the thing rather than get sort of bogged down in, you know, arcane curiosities or win by virtue of a loophole, so to speak. You had something to say for that. Yeah, this is the second time today you've said synergy with a straight face. Please stop doing that. <laughs> This is not a 1980s children's that, cartoon. We're not. I didn't realize that was the second time, but okay, I'll, I'll knock it off. I, I must have seen an ener- you know, a clean energy truck. Watching it. No, like I just that. assumed you've been watching old episodes of Gem. <laughs> <laughs> so these little things, while things like there was no vocatio and they weren't promulgated in English, they were pro- or in, in Latin, they were promulgated in Italian. Um, these little things um, are. Um, Frustrating to canon lawyers because they anticipate the way in which, uh, or to regular to civil lawyers as well, because they anticipate the way in which they could down the road cause unnecessary complications in the resolution of disputes. And the purpose of the law is to help. Uh, one purpose of the law is to help resolve disputes without, um, uh, without unnecessary complication and with clarity and with sort of demonstrable um, application of justice. And so these things, while seemingly like, well, they're just grumbling because they like it that way. Um, in fact, for canon lawyers, you know, we uh, we see. Um, this could become a thing which is a snag in the application of justice. Now, is that the end of the world? Um, no, but it um, can be a little bit frustrating, and um, and it, it is what we saw in the promulgation of canon law this week. Yep. And, okay. Yes. So thank you for allowing me to fetch about that. Sure. Um, so one of one of the changes that was made in a couple of different canons was the the Pope has chosen to downgrade, effectively, the level of... Um, oversight and the process by which the Vatican approves various things in the life of the church from um, the a sort of formal approval to a confirmation. Now, but, and this again is why it's important to have laws as the Code of Canon Law is, and indeed the Code of Canons for the Eastern Churches, uh, in one language, one authoritative language, Latin. So that if there, if there are differences of meaning between the various 
um, translations, there's one sort of one place in which to make recourse. Right. Well, and but everybody knows, for example, what however you choose to translate it in various languages, everyone knows what a Latin approbatio versus confirmatio. Right. Is. The terms of art can be consistent. The terms of art can be consistent, mm -hmm. and their distinctions and meaning can be understood by legal practitioners mm -hmm. all over the world. You don't have to haggle over whether there's any difference between approval and confirmation, or because there is. So, for example, um, this wasn't something that was changed this week. This is something that was changed, I think, 2017? I think I'm right in saying that the Pope issued a motu proprio called Magnum Principium, where he basically liberalized the freedom of bishops' conferences to approve new translations of the liturgy. Right. And he went from um, basically approval Requiring to confirmation. Requiring that, that bishops' conferences translations get the approval of the congregation for divine worship to getting confirmation of the, the congregation for divine worship. And that there was, as sometimes is necessary, an underscoring by the congregation that, no, when the Vatican has a process of confirmation, it's much less invasive. They don't tend to weigh in on the substance of the matter. They're merely confirming that this was the product of a legitimate process, that they don't sort of look under the hood too much, and they tend to take the suitability of what has been presented to them on a basis of, and this is a quote from the CDW at the time, trust and confidence. Mm -hmm. So this is basically, it's not quite a rubber stamp, but it is definitely a, a step below in, in terms of oversight from where we were. And so this was done in a couple of different places, and one of which we noticed and wrote about this week was the approval of programs for priestly formation, mm -hmm. That's right. which is a fascination to me and to you because we have been for a couple of months now writing about the fact that the USCCB does not currently have a program for priestly formation, that the last one they had, uh, I think, lapsed. The fifth edition officially lapsed in 2015. It officially lapsed in 2015, but I think we should recognize that. Um, no, they were granted an extension yeah, right. because there was yeah, there, continues the, the congregation mm -hmm. for the um, clergy produces from time to time, usually every 15 years or so, maybe it's 25. Mm -hmm. Something like that. It's not, it's, not, like that. it's not entirely consistent, but it's every 15-ish years. The congregation produces a ratio fundamentalis, which is supposed to be a sort of bedrock document on which programs for priestly formation in different areas are built upon. And they said, we're about to come up with a new ratio. No point in updating your PPF right now. We'll give you a two-year extension so that you can accommodate it when it comes. That came and... The, a sixth edition of the PPF was drafted by the U.S. bishops, um, and that was supposed to be all done, dusted, and approved by 2019, mm -hmm. um, but it has not been. It has been completely stalled, and it has been completely stalled for, um, what we'll say, differences of opinion uh, between the U.S. bishops and Rome on a couple of things, but most uh, most notably, as we've written about a couple of times now, the incorporation of the so-called propedeutic phase Right, a sort of year of spiritual formation for seminaries. Spiritual and human formation mm -hmm. preceding academic studies. And the U.S. bishops have, some U.S. seminaries and bishops have already adopted this. Others have pushed back and said this doesn't fit in with our sort of academic structures mm -hmm. and we need more flexibility. Anyway, Rome has been, until now, fairly consistent of saying, no, we weren't kidding around when we said there needs to be this phase. We think this is important to the formation of a healthy clergy and a healthy presbyterate. Um, we're not joking. You're going to do this and refused to approve to issue the approbatio for the PPF, so it has not come in. Now, as of Roman noon Tuesday, um, the congregation only has to give a confirmatio, mm -hmm. which is a, as we just said, a, a, a totally lower level, level of, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if this means that whether this was intentional or not, or whether this is just something that's going to happen sort of quasi by accident, I wonder if this doesn't mean that the PPF is now going to go through 
effectively with the USCCB having won that standoff, that they, if they haven't effectively managed to run the clock out on the Congregation for Clergy. And if they have, I think that's going to send a very, very interesting message um, to bishops' conferences everywhere yeah, that about very well how you may can be. deal with the Roman Congregation. That very well may be. I, I um, you know, sort of substantively, I um, I think the propedeutic here makes a lot of sense. The, the concerns the bishops of the United States have about sort of um, student visas for immigrant priests and how to kind of what to do with student loans when someone's in a propedeutic year. I mean, those are concerns that have to be addressed. But, you know, I, I, I think the Holy See's intention is really to have a year of, of formation that is very important. But this may be a kind of—it would seem, you know, this may be the kind of thing by which now the, the USCCB is able to kind of move forward with a far more sort of adaptive version of the of propedeutic formation than the Holy See had intended. But we shall see. Um, there were a couple of other things that stuck out to me uh, um, among the changes to canon law that the book made this week, which are— Again, you know, the the it was kind of a grab bag of um, of mostly small changes, but there were a couple that stood out to me for the potential that they have, um, and uh, one of them was um, a new capacity for um, religious institutes to dismiss um, professed members, perpetually include perpetual professed members without um, having that decision um, confirmed by the Holy See. So it used to be the case that if you were a member of a religious institute. Um, it is still the case, of course, that if you're a member of a religious institute, you have certain a religious order, you know, whether you're a religious sister or um, a, a Jesuit or Capuchin or whatever you are. Um, as a member of a religious institute, you have uh, certain rights and, um, and and obligations, and one of the rights that you have is sort of the right to ongoing um, stability, inclusion um, in the life of the community, which includes, like, you know, as a member of the community, the kind of support and uh, housing and these kinds of things, which are proper to members of the community. Um, you can't easily, the point is, you can't easily sort of be kicked out of a religious community. And, Especially uh, if you've made, for example, vows of poverty and right. obedience and renounced all your worldly goods. And, and renounced all your worldly yourself. goods. And, and that's a good thing because, you know, um, you shouldn't be able to be kicked out of something to which you've made, easily kicked out of something to which you have made a permanent commitment before God, um, you know, um, because that's a serious thing. And so uh, there are canonical crimes um, for which one can be dismissed from a religious institute. Um, but in order to see that happen, um, there needs to be a process, an internal process of um, collecting proofs and assessing them and those kinds of things, and then having the consent of sort of a senior group of elected um, members of the institute before the superior of the institute decides to kick you out. And it used to be that your kicking out didn't take effect until Rome had looked over everything and said, yeah, this looks okay to us. And that the purpose of that was to protect the rights of the religious, um, to ensure that um, there wasn't a sort of um, uh, uh, rash judgment on the part of religious or a personality conflict in the context of a religious community, which saw someone kicked out when they really didn't, you know, shouldn't have been, and those kinds of things. It was it was to protect the rights of religious, and uh, and um, and that has been stripped. Um, you know, uh, there's no longer a requirement that. Um, uh, a dismissal from a religious institute be um, confirmed by the Congregation for Institutes of Consecrated Life. There is, of course, um, and the new canon makes this as clear as the old one did, there, a religious does have the right to appeal a dismissal to the Congregation for Institutes of Consecrated Life. But making a hierarchical recourse, an appeal against a, a decision like that in the life of the Church, is a little bit complicated, isn't it, Ed? I mean, there are, there are certain formalities that have to be observed. It's, yeah, and often people are let's say, not apprised of their People may not know how rights. to do it, right? So it has to be done with certain formalities. It has to be done in a certain time frame. It has to, you know, your appeal has to use certain words in, in order to um, 
in order to sort of um, be procedurally valid. And yeah, people are not always apprised of those rights. And they're not always, you know, if someone were to be dismissed from a religious institute, especially in a, in a highly contentious situation, they're not always sort of in the emotional state or spiritual state or state of mind to think, okay, I got to get my canonical appeal rolling and I got to do it quick because there's a peremptory time limit and those kinds of things. So what the old law did was to essentially say, look, we know these things are contentious. We know these things are complicated. We know that religious are not sort of by and large, or at least de facto, um, you know, experts in canon law with easy access to a canon lawyer. And we know that there are not a ton of canon lawyers out there who are who have the expertise in religious law to be doing kind of these kind of recourses all the time. So we're just going to check them all. Um, yeah. and, and, but I mean, again, this is this is of a piece of what we were just discussing about Rome basically saying we are not going to mark your homework for you every week. Right, exactly. And so I, 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 you know, the point is to say we respect the authority of religious superiors um, and the appeal process still exists. But uh, as just someone who sort of often thinks about the protection of rights, I think the prior system was, um, if not more just, at the very least, more charitable um, to religious. I agree. But why do you think they've made these decisions? Why do you think they've made these decisions? To be honest, I've well, not spent a lot of time speculating about why they made that decision, other than perhaps not wanting to sort of incur liability or intrude in the contentious, you know, in the contentious disputes amid, amid religious. Well, so again, we, we said that the general published purpose of all of this was subsidiarity. I think it's about money. You think that's about money? Just yes. that they don't want to have to do the work of it? Yeah, you need I less think personnel. That there has, I, the Holy See's got a budget crisis. The funding of the apparatus of the oh. Roman Curia is a real problem, mm. and there have been, as we've seen, all these apostolic visitations of Vatican mm-hmm. departments, which is which are cost-cutting of. measures. Yeah, yeah, which are, but, but they're being run effectively as cost-cutting measures. Right. And I think they're basically saying, where can we scale back what we do? I oh, think this is, Ed, that's very insightful. I hadn't thought about. I think that, we but are seeing. Yeah, I think we're seeing belt tightening. This is this is the government end. Of budget cuts. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. This, this yeah. is Time the government of the universal church saying we are going to have to do less with less. Mm. That's very interesting. The era of big government is over. <laughs> now, there's another change that um, also is about money that kind of operates in the other way. And it's the other one of the cha- new changes to canon law that gives me a little bit of pause or as somebody who's concerned with sort of the protection of rights thinks the old law... Was uh, was better at protecting rights, or less likely to lead to contention about sort of rights than than the new law. And do you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't. But I'm, I'm now curious. Talking about pious wills. Ed. Oh, what is a pious will? Uh, it is basically a will is a will, um, but in this case, it's with things being left for religious purposes or with religious intent. And if something is deemed to be a pious will, so for example, you leave a bunch of money. Um, to the church for a particular purpose, or you leave a bunch of money with the intention that masses be said for the repose of your soul. Right, so it could be for a spiritual purpose. I'm surprised you were willing to answer that question because I asked you what subsidiarity was, and then I was like, well, actually, you're totally wrong about that. So I'm surprised you were willing to jump on that train again. Um, well, you you assume that I accept your corrections, and I don't just think you're <laughs> Well, you're wrong about the... subsidiarity, obviously. I... It's a made-up word. I don't care. You, can, <laughs> subsidiarity isn't a term of art in the it's code. A, no, it's a principle of Catholic social teaching. It's a principle of Catholic social teaching, which means it's open to interpretation. <laughs> I, come on. <clears throat> big boys. We, we can both say, in, with the benefit of our informed listenership, that... <laughs> Certain you can make Catholic, Catholic social if you if you are of a disposition and you lack scruples, <laughs> you can make Catholic social teaching say whatever you uh. want, and the Catholic 
world and Catholic press and Catholic media and oh, make it Catholic mad, university make it book publishing houses. Right. Basically, tra- whole there are whole shelves, libraries of Catholic books that basically trade on the idea that you can make Catholic social teaching say whatever the heck you want. But both by the both by the libertarians and the communists, right? I mean, yeah, there's no, 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 no. I'm, nobody I'm has sides. a corner on I'm that saying. market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 mm-hmm. no, no one has a corner. I'm saying it's yeah. a completely wide open field. That's my point. Okay. Um, so no, I don't care that you try to correct my definition of subsidiarity because I don't. There isn't an authoritative <laughs> definition, so I don't mind. On pious wills, there is one. It's in the code. And if you want to go to the law, let's go. And you're pretty close. Um, pious wills are mostly what you said. Um, they're uh, they're they're um, money or goods given to um, given for the for a, a pious purpose, a, a religious purpose. Um, they don't have to be given at death. They can be given. Um, um, in in life or in death, so uh, that's a little bit of a distinction there. But um, but and it's, it it may turn out to be an important one in what I'm going to say. But a pious will basically is an amount of money that you give um, to the church for some um, w- for some particular purpose, some particular religious purpose. That could be saying masses. So you give the church a thousand dollars, and you say you know every year for the next one hundred years. You know I'm giving this money so that every year for the next one hundred years, or every year even for the next fifty years, a mass will be said on the day that my mother died. Right. Um, and there's a little sort of trust there, and the church accepts that money under the condition that, yeah, we'll say those masses for that money. Uh, you know, we'll say that those masses, and that'll be the stipend for them. You know, for the masses. Um, oh, so it could be about mass stipends, or it could be, um, I'm giving this amount of money for the upkeep of this church. Um, you know, uh, this is a chapel that's very important to me, and no one's really keeping it up anymore. So I'm giving this amount of money, and I'd like um, the money to be invested and the the um, income from from the amount. Uh, to pay annually for the maintenance and upkeep of, of a church. That could be a pious will, too. Or the same thing, I'm giving this amount of money to annually uh, you know, feed the poor or to pay the rent of certain people through Catholic Charities or something like that. It's for a, for an apostolic or religious purpose. But is, it, is that fair? Yes, I think okay. that's fair. Now, the key— You just to, said what I said, only you took a lot longer to say it. I said most of what you said, but I made the distinction that you, had, you could be alive. And then I took a lot longer to say the rest of it. The key um, is that— um, you have given the money for a particular purpose, and the church has accepted it kind of under those conditions or under those terms in order and, and committed to fulfilling that purpose. Now, sometimes you don't want to fulfill that purpose anymore. Sometimes things change. Sometimes, you know, you, it, it, it no longer seems to make sense to the administrator of the money to meet that purpose. Or sometimes the files get so disorganized that you don't really know who you committed to say masses for anymore. The new pastor comes to the parish and he doesn't really know what the deal is with all the mass intentions because the old pastor was ridiculously disorganized. And instead of keeping a little black book on his desk, he kept things Which sort of is a over. violation of canon law. Which is a violation of canon law. But, you know, this guy's got to clean it up and it's just like everything's everywhere. It used to be that you couldn't change a pious will, um, that, the, that the local administrator, the diocesan bishop even, couldn't change a pious will, um, you know, a fund left for the upkeep of this building where the building is flush and other buildings are doing poorly. He couldn't sort of move the money somewhere else unless the donor who, who originally gave the money had given him specific permission to change the purpose of the pious will. Um, if, you wanted, if you wanted to um, change it and you didn't have that, you had to go to Rome. Now... If you consult with interested parties, so you consult the rector of that church and maybe a descendant of the person who left the money originally and those kinds of things, and you consult the diocesan finance council, the diocesan bishop can change the purpose of the pious will. Um, Why am I concerned about that, do you think, Ed? Um, Well, because it basically will liberalize the ability of which bishops to repurpose money. It will liberalize the ability of bishops to repurpose money is exactly right. Now, sorry, I'm only giving you three quarters of my attention, not because I don't find what you're saying interesting, but because I, I'll be honest with you, now that you're saying it out loud, your 
correcting, I guess, a misapprehension I had because it was my recollection of Title Four of Book Five that the bishop already had, frankly, far too much latitude. He had a lot of latitude. So if it became impossible to fulfill a condition, so if money was left for the upkeep of a church and the church burned down, he could change it. Um, there are certain other circumstances, but but it, it was limited. He couldn't sort of change or commute um, or modify a pious will under all circumstances, just just some of them, effectively. Um, and that's in those. Uh, that's uh, that's there in sort of the, uh, the 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 third and fourth, and the second, third, and fourth paragraph of that canon. Um, but the concern I have is not um, the change. This change, which is made, I think, in deference to subsidiarity, but now I think might also be made because the Holy See doesn't want to get sent to the congregation for clergy tons of these things which have to be approved. Um, you, I think you're right about that. It might be, in fact, about reduction of workload. I'm not so concerned that the bishop is going to sort of willy-nilly change a lot of um, uh, things, you know, w- without a good reason, change a lot of trusts or... Um, or uh, uh, you said without a good reason, but <laughs> much like subsidiarity, a good reason... I'm not so concerned that the bishop is going to... A good reason is I spent all the money in the school fund. My point is I'm not so concerned that in most dioceses this is going to become an Episcopal sort of money grab because the diocesan finance council sign off on it and those kinds of things. My concern is that there's going to be a perception that this is a diocesan money grab, you know, that people think, well, I'm going to leave my money for um, taking care of the, uh, the, the parish where I grew up and the bishop's just going to take it and do whatever he wants. And, um, and he can do that now. Um, my concern is that that perception could be a deterrent to people, at least who are paying attention to these kind of things, from leaving money in trust to the church for particular purposes. E- even though I, 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 I'm disinclined to think that, you know, bishops on the whole are just going to sort of use it as a money grab, because I don't like to think that way about bishops. Uh, I don't like to think that way about bishops either, and, and I agree with you, and it may have that problem. I, you know, I, I have never... It's never sat easy with me, the general provision of Book 5, that bishops, that is, diocesan bishops, are ex officio the executors of all pious wills. That has always struck me as somehow... I, I don't... It doesn't seem just. I don't, I don't understand why a member of the faithful who wishes to make a pious will and leave a bequest for a spiritual purpose or a religious purpose in the church can't nominate their own executor. I, I've never found that provision especially satisfying because these trusts that are left to the church and benefits for, for seminarians so people leave their money often in their will for i'm going to leave this money to pay the tuition of seminarians and you know um and it'll be invested and the money that comes out of it every year will pay the tuition of seminarians sorry jd um if i look distracted it's because outside of my office window literally outside of my office window um the municipality have decided to pull up a giant orange apparatus and are coring out a tree trunk as we record. Okay. So that's vexing. So if you hear sort of the sounds of basically agricultural dentistry, that's what's going on outside my office. I don't know why. I didn't hear the sounds. I think we need to get you a studio without any windows. We need to get... It is often the case that a squirrel or a bird runs by and suddenly you're to the window with your tail wagging. (laughs) And uh, I'm left wondering when the conversation is going to pick back up. Anyway, I apologize to listeners for the sudden poor sound quality coming out of my end, but that's what it is. <laughs> We're going to transition now. So anyway, yeah, uh, the point is, I don't think it's a big deal that bishops are the, in charge of the benefits thing for the seminarians or whatever, but I do think, I do not want people to, I, I, I can see how people would be deterred from giving the money if they 
if the perception sort of floats out there, well, you know, the Pope said the bishop can change it for whatever he wants. Yeah, and I mean, it, that's my point. I don't think those concerns are entirely unfounded. I, I, yeah, no, I don't. I think don't they're entirely unfounded. I think it'll be less. I think that, that would be become a less normal frequent thing for bishops. I think that would be less frequent than yeah, right, exactly. But you it's, know, it's, it's, not, it's also not it's not wrong on the theory. Right, and that that will give people pause. Yeah. I don't know, and you know, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I would agree. But I mean, again, uh, to to the original point, which is, I think this is part of Rome just saying, "Sorry, we, we're not, we're not doing I think all it this is. anymore." Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Why Ed is making now very interesting faces because he's upset about this. You're very upset about this tree. I'm extremely thing. upset about this. You do. You have to understand that my municipality have been complete jerks to me for the entire week. Like last night at seven thirty, I was trying to put the baby down. And they started jackhammering in the driveway across okay. from my house. Just like, I, th- 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 this is maybe it's they getting out of hand, JT. Oh, I, you're, you're a new parent with a baby. I understand. No, I don't care about no, that. This yeah, is about okay, personal inconvenience to me. The child forgotten, sleeps like a rock. That's not a problem. <laughs> I'm just, look, what I'm really saying is please, dear listeners, go to www.pillarcatholic.com and subscribe as hard and as fast as you possibly can so that I can move out of this hellscape of a city and live in a farm somewhere because this is not working for me. There are altogether too many people around and this is not, this is not working. You are, you are very upset. I'm irate, J.D. This has ruined my day. To the point where several times during the show I've thought to myself, you know, Ed's not really here. I wonder if I should just ask him if we want to do the show later. Can you not hear this? it's, no, I can't hear it at all, actually. It's deafening. But I feel like, I feel like um, you know, like we're having this conversation. And it's like, well, my eyes are over here, buddy. Where are you? Why aren't you talking to me? I mean, I, I don't like feeling this the way. stuff on my I desk is shaking. I sure don't like having to beg for your attention. <laughs> Edward, why can't um, a, 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 a reader wrote to me this week to ask this question. Um, I was baptized, the reader said, in the early 80s. And I... Um, uh, you know, my parish, I don't know very much about my parish, but I have every reason to think the guy, very, you know, the pastor very well may have been a wee baptizer, and we talked about we baptize a lot last week in the way in which it, the Holy See has determined that it invalidates. Um, but the question of the listener was, um, well, why shouldn't everyone who was baptized from, let's say, 1970 to 1999, um, the time when we baptized was sort of most frequent, which the Holy See has now said is an invalid formula for baptism— why shouldn't everyone be conditionally baptized, just in case? Well, conditional baptism is something that we really, really only do in extreme circumstances. So strong is the legal presumption. And we, I mean, I think we've talked about this before on previous occasions. If we yeah. have, or the questions yeah. are coming back. No, they are. And um, the, the bottom line is this. The church always presumes validity in these circumstances. And for mm-hmm. conditional, conditional baptism is not a sort of, you know, insurance policy. It is really, mm-hmm. baptism is not something that should be, um, I mean, you can't repeat it, but it shouldn't be sort of frivolously attempted again just to be safe. Like, the, it's, the church mm-hmm. says this is a very, very serious thing. We don't just, you know, rebaptize just in case. Like, it, it is really, we don't do that because this is so important and so strong as the presumption of validity and, and all of those things. So, um, in in the mind of the church, and this has been the mind of the CDF for a long time on a range of issues, not just this, but you don't go for conditional baptism unless there is a particular reason to really think either you weren't baptized at all or there was a specific problem with your baptism. And, well, I 
went to kind of, you know, I was baptized in a kind of felt banner parish in the mid 80s. And who knows? Could be. That's that's not. Is that a serious reason about a specific? No, baptism? that is a generalized no. concern. A generalized concern about a possibility. Yeah, but a specific, but a particular reason, a serious reason has to have to do with the specific baptism. So it is reasonable if it, if it was proven that a particular priest was we baptizing, you know, from this year to from this year to this year in this parish, and he and he says, you know, I did it seventy percent of the time. Well, there's a serious reason to doubt the validity of any particular baptism. So it is reasonable in such cases that persons would be conditionally baptized. Um, but it's not sort of reasonable. It, it doesn't rise to the level of serious doubt to simply say I was in the time when people were doing that, and yeah. therefore. And and again, this is right. we have there. Okay. So there are real problems, and we talked about this a little bit last week. There are real problems that are created in the life of the church by, in some places, by some priests in some parishes for some periods of time, systemic invalidity of baptisms. Mm -hmm. And that has created real problems in some real instances. So, for example, you know, uh, the priest you know in the Archdiocese of Detroit, Fatherhood, who had to be rebaptized, reconfirmed, reordained. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, created all kinds of messes for him. So there are situations mm -hmm. where this has real effects because the sacraments are realities. They are spiritual realities. They are also mm -hmm. existential realities. They, you know, they confer a character. Mm -hmm. They impart an ontological change. They configure a person to Christ in a very real, tangible way, which makes other kinds of changes, for example, sacramental ordination, possible, without which it is impossible. But what I've, you have seen a lot of in the last week, and, you know, as usual, this is because secular media has decided to weigh in on these things and finally noticed two years after the fact that the CDF put out this document. <laughs> and as with everything secular media touches to do with the church or religion in general, it is both um, lazily done um, with little attention to detail or understanding of the thing about which they are speaking. And so you've had all of these sort of witless maunderings, which I'm sure are causing real upset among some parts of the faithful where you get some idiot popping off on CNN saying, oh, well, if this is true, then we'd be saying that thousands of people can't go to heaven because their baptism is invalid. Like, this is nonsense. No one is saying no, this. No, we don't believe in a divine scorekeeper who's just saying, well, you didn't punch all the holes on your punch card yeah, so you can't the, come to heaven. God is not. God can work outside of the sacraments, and if you think that you were baptized and everyone thought that you were baptized, um, uh, yeah, God is not um, waiting God to get you. God does not deny saying, well, it wasn't salvation true. to people right. because somebody else did something wrong. This is a basic premise. Right. One of the, you know, one of the, God being, as we know, a lawyer, um, one of the, the fundamental premises of God's justice that you can find throughout the scriptures is he doesn't punish you for someone else's mistake. Right. You know, the sins of the father are not now, visited that on. doesn't, that that doesn't mean, it you're, doesn't baptized. mean you're baptized. It doesn't mean that the particular characters that come with baptism are conferred, but it does mean that God is not, um, yeah, waiting to get you. Well, and it does mean that if you are a Catholic right. with a presumed valid baptism, which all mm -hmm. baptisms absent a compelling and specific reason to, you know, to doubt or suspect are presumed valid, um, unless you are someone like fatherhood, who this can have real knock-on effects, you don't need to be in fear of your salvation over this. Well, and even Fatherhood wasn't in fear of No, he never was. He was Father totally relaxed happened about it. He to understood. I mean, he happened to see a video, and he understood what was going on, and it was, yeah, mm -hmm. that's yeah. right. So, I yeah. mean, you know, there is, there is a, it's unfortunate that we started last week talking about how this has not been a decision of the CDF, which has been communicated with good clarity. There has not been a sort of teaching moment to accompany right. it. It has not been rolled out right. in a way which makes it easy for the faithful to understand. And now, of course, what you have on top of all of that is the sort of secondary coverage 
which is sowing amongst the faithful unfounded, irrational, and unnecessary, but nevertheless real concerns and fears about things that they shouldn't have to be worried about because it's not a concern. Mm -hmm. And uh, But this mm -hmm. is what you get. This goes back to what we were saying. But I don't think it's a sense of it's not a concern in that, oh, you know, if you think that you, if you have some evidence that you're not baptized, don't worry about it. It's just that everyone can't be conditionally baptized because, um, you know, that reflects a level of sort of a a level of anxiety that is uh, that is too high or a level of sort of skepticism about the way that God works that is too high. But if you have evidence of the thing, then indeed um, the right thing to do is to be baptized. And what I've heard from readers this week are people who say, you know, um, I do have very strong and serious reason to believe that I was um, uh, invalidly baptized. And I went to my pastor, even to my diocesan bishop, who said, oh, you know, don't worry about it. That's just, the CDF's just being persnickety, and I think we baptized is fine and things like that. And that to the extent that it exists, is a pastoral tragedy. It's not just a pastoral tragedy. It's it's wrong. A tragedy, and yeah, a tragedy of, of wrongful of conduct. Responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, yes. You're not just okay. being pastorally insensitive. You are inspiring and instilling in the faithful a disrespect and disregard for the authoritative teaching of the church and the realities of the sacraments. That's terrible. Anywhere that is happening yeah. is, it's, it's, it is a pastoral tragedy. It is also... Just clerical malpractice. Mm-hmm. That's right. But if you want to see that, just okay. turn on CNN. Well, <laughs> well, on that note, Ed, I can tell uh, by your um, gazes to the window that the the tr tree trunk core has uh, has has won the battle for your attention, and I would like you to be able to go resolve the tree trunk issues at hand. Um, so uh, it sounds like it's probably about time to wrap up oh, the show. We could. I mean, can you really not hear this? I'm not at all. I'm thrilled to hear that because I have no idea. I'm starting to wonder actually if you're. I'm starting to actually kind of worry about you. It is deafening. But in the anyway, sense that no, no I, I can't. We're not going to go yet. I went to all the trouble. I've created a game this week, JD, because you did. I did because we haven't played a game in a little while, and I was no, I yeah. was feeling the lack. And uh, we started off the show talking a little bit about the Super Bowl halftime show, and as near yeah. as I've been able to understand, the criteria for booking acts for the Super Bowl halftime show is this is the music of the adolescence of people in their early 40s. Uh, or even a, a little bit younger, but I suppose yeah. that's fine. We're not for You and I are not 40 and we like the show. No, that's that true. Thing. But I mean, but I guess what I'm saying is effectively it's like 30, year, 30 years, 35 years is about the sort of period that you have to pass your peak before you're invited to reform at the Super Bowl. <laughs> More or less? Um, with the exception of Eminem, who I think started sort of getting radio play in the very yeah, late but he 90s. was a, he was so, he was know, B list on this. They they were booking Dre. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I think that's right. And Dre, you know, Eminem is effectively Dre's creation, one of Dre's many proteges, and so he brought he brought his his best yeah, proteges. Exactly. Um, yep. Okay. So I thought, given that you know we're we're now into the twenty twenties. Um, this means that basically the 1990s are fair game for Super Bowl booking, and presumably there will be similar nostalgia acts booked. It's oh, Green Day is going to play Time of Your Life, the worst Green Day song. Uh, God, I hope not. They're an absolutely obnoxious band. I don't mind if Green Day comes, but I don't want them to play the worst Green Day song. I think the competition for title of worst Green Day, Green Day song is fierce. <laughs> fierce. I'd say everything after the album Dookie can yeah, yeah, I totally agree. They should just play. They should just play. You know what would be a great halftime show? 
just playing that whole album that start would be to right. finish. I, I would tune in for that. That would be you know, all But right. they won't do that. Yeah, you know I would, why? I would like that. Because of the M&M effect. I don't Green know. Green Day were interesting when they didn't take themselves seriously. Then they got all, oh, we're yeah, activists, that's man. Right. We're not just... Something unpredictable and at the end was here. It's like, we don't need another band to write a graduation song. Yeah. Write a song about skipping graduation because you're weird or something, a Green Day-ish yeah. song. Anyway, so I thought mm-hmm. in a... In, in a just to take your temperature on what future Super Bowl acts might be in contention or who you'd like to see, I've done a, a greater or lesser of 90s acts that um, only okay. really only the 90s will remember them. And uh, maybe you might want to maybe you might want to rank them for me. So this is basically VH1's We yeah, Love basically. the 90s. Okay, right, so um, now we've already, they've obviously booked the cream of the hip-hop scene. The cream of the crop. I rise to the top. House never, of Pain. Sorry. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to see. They weren't in my list, but I'd like to see. Yeah, that, that would I, would, awesome. I would really I tune in to see House of Pain. Yeah, I think that would be that really would be cool. cool. Um, okay, but so some mm-hmm. some of the by the wayside '90s R&B artists that perhaps might be in content. DJ Cool, are no, you going to say DJ Cool? You can rank these three for me, please. And you're ranking them in order in which you would like to see them. So, uh, I, when I say freeze, y'all stop okay. on the dot. No, when the three. Say, your three are Coolio, Wyclef Jean. And Andre 3000. The Clef. Clef, Clef. Really? Yeah. But he, you're not off. You're not put off by <laughs> his alleged misappropriation of funds raised for Haiti. I never pay attention to. I, I mean, I honestly am unaware of it. I never pay attention to the sort of um, scandal surrounding Hollywood celebrities. You know why? Because I pay enough attention to the misappropriation of funds in my mother, the church. To pay attention to the misappropriation of funds from um, a guy who I know from the Fugees and before that the Refugee Camp All-Stars and find out if he's moving money around from me. I, I just don't just yeah. I don't have the bandwidth for that. If People Magazine is reporting on a financial scandal, I don't have the room for Fair it enough. in my life. Okay, so but give me the give me the ranking of the three, please. So it's Wyclef, Coolio, and Andre Oh, okay. Uh, the Fugees, Outcast, and then Coolio. Well, that, I mean, that's wrong. If you're if you're booking and if you're booking these <laughs> any of these three, Coolio is your number one with a bullet. He's gonna no, Coolio is gonna give no, you by on. far. As I walk through the valley of the shadow, that's death, his I worst take a song. Look at my, yeah. yeah, but it's the one that they're gonna sing. You have to think about He'll what sing are they gonna do. And so, and no, he will. You know what? So, Coolio will leave um, it all on the stage. <laughs> Andre three thousand will turn up wearing so, you know I don't know a lycra leprechaun do hey Outcast is gonna do hey ya. No, be awesome. that was a tedious song that I did not enjoy at all. Oh, you... no, you're wrong. Okay, so moving on. Um, the next three, we're, we're sort of in the bracket of boy bands now. So which of these three? Um, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, or Boys to Men? Uh, I'm going to say Boys to Men, and I'll tell you why. the best, and also they invented the genre. Yes. Also, well, um, who preceded who? Did Boys to Men precede New Kids on the Block, or New Kids on the Block uh, I Boys think, to Men? and my chronology... I think his sound here is Boys to Men were antecedent to all of the other boy bands. They were the first sort of I don't know if Boys to Men was vocal I don't know harmony if group to, to make that kind of style music popular. I, I don't know if Boys to Men preceded New Kids on the Block or not. I, I honestly don't know. And the reason I don't know that I'll tell you why I don't know that. I don't know when Boys to Men got started, but I know this. Um, my sister's four years older than I am. When she went to a middle school dance, they would listen to a New Kids on the Block song. When we went to a middle school dance, we would listen to a Boys to Men song. So using that yeah, as a as a New Kids the on measure the Block are not things, in your not in your bracket here. I understand. I'm just saying I don't think that your claim about Boys to Men having and being the first boys band boy band is exactly right. Plus, what about the Monkeys? No, uh, d- for that no, matter, the what vo- about the, the sort of the vocal harmony shtick 
that it, oh like the beach boys no, not like the beach boys why are you doing this why can't you ever just take something look you can draw a line why can't why can't i take this seriously what is wrong with me today whole why, documentaries why have been produced why can't JD i zero in on what the podcast is boys about. to men were ripped off by nsync yeah, and backstreet boys sure, and, no okay i oh gosh you spend a lot more time with TMZ than I would I don't know what imagined. TMZ is. I didn't know about the Diable. <laughs> I didn't know what the documentaries were. I didn't know about Andre 3000 and Haiti. Or I didn't know about Wyclef Jean and, and Haiti. I mean, you're just spending a lot more time on celebrity gossip than a, and a grown-up adult human well, being you just should. rank the boy and, bands. Uh, you, you need to wor- work on that. Yeah, boys to men, and then I can't tell the difference between the Backstreet That's Boys. Fair. And I'll accept I, that. I don't know. Which one says that? Uh, you're all I ever wanted. Yeah, which no, one says that? Okay, well, I put okay. that one last. Um, three bands I know you'll love here. Uh, this We're going to call this faux punk, and we'll say Offspring, Green Day, Blink-182. <laughs> oh, that's great. For the Super yeah, Bowl, Super Bowl halftime though? show. I mean, um, the Offspring, Green Day, and Blink-182. In that order. Yeah. Whoa. I, uh, no, I would have gone... Blink, Offspring, then Green Day. Green Day are tedious and to be avoided at all costs. Um, Offspring are probably going to put on a reasonably decent show, although I'm not a massive fan of their music. And But again, Blink-182, I would say it's the Coolio factor. They're just going to leave it all on stage. Blink-182 Blink and Coolio. What I'm learning is that um, Ed is my little sister circa No, I'm not. This is not, I'm not ranking them for musical quality. She left me roses by the stairs. Surprises let me know she cares. No, what you're not understanding, J.D., is I am... Say it ain't so, I will not go. Turn the light on, carry me home. Just just wave when you're done Blink and I might get sucks. 10 seconds. Blink-182 sucks. Okay. The Offspring, Green Day, Blink-182. No, you have to understand. With a long My gap. rankings here are premised on the Eminem versus Dre and Snoop metric I set out earlier, which is who's going to give the best show and understands the market they're being pitched at. Who's going to give the absolute? Couldn't it just be what would you enjoy? I mean, you don't have to. You don't have to be sort of the the uh, the the marketing brand partnership coordinator for the Super Bowl. You can just think, who would I like to see at okay. the Super Bowl? Well, the, okay. So this next one is going to involve some. This is a hypothetical. Granted, it's not okay. literally possible. But it's a hypothetical. Could you please uh, choose for me between Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, and Sinead O'Connor? Uh, everything I know about Sinead O'Connor. Literally everything I know about Sinead O'Connor is that one time she tore up a picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live and it angered uh, people. That's and her, her head is shaved and I think now she identifies as a priest. That's everything I, I think know. That's about everything Sinead there O'Connor. is to know about Sinead O'Connor, actually. Okay, what were the other ones? Mariah Carey yeah. and Whitney Houston. Will Mariah Carey's Super Bowl be, take place during Christmas? Is that an option? Yes. I, I thought the Super Mariah Bowl was a fixed Carey, date. Christmas. Well, we're going to move it so that we can have the Mariah Carey Christmas time Super Bowl extravaganza. Fair enough. Um, all I want for football is you. It will be the song that she'll sing, and it'll be amazing. Okay. That, the Mariah Carey Christmas time Super Bowl extravaganza, to take place on December 25th with fireworks and so many flyovers you don't even know. And then Whitney Houston. What, what does Whitney Houston uh, say? Whitney Houston had, like, all the 90s hits. Okay, I want to dance tell me with somebody. Okay. Oh, yeah, okay. Like, Whitney Houston was a okay. big deal. Where were you in the 90s? No, I know. I just don't know any of the songs that she sings. My grandma really liked Whitney Wind Houston. Wind Beneath My Wing. Yeah, okay. Uh, Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston, and then Sinead okay. O'Connor. Um, bands with Dave Grohl in them is your next category. Uh, Nirvana, <laughs> Foo Fighters, and Queens of the Stone Age. I don't know anything about Queens of the Stone Age. Foo Fighters, I guess, could sing the Mentos song. 
Um, Nirvana is not going to be get any good without Well, again, Cobain this is this is hypothetical. Kind of assuming weird. that they were at full strength. You know, it's interesting. It's sort of imagine if Kurt Cobain had lived, and now Nirvana songs were in the background of like Cadillac commercials, and had and were more frequently turned into Muzak, and Cobain was sort of pitching um, life insurance or something like that. It smells like TV, Teen Spirit like, done as a sort of soft jazz sax solo when you got into an elevator. Yeah, that's exactly right. Cobain himself kind of gets into a strange sort of experimental jazz period in his 30s and or begins putting out all these kind of children's folk albums that you don't know if you should buy or not because it's super weird. I, I'm, I'm, God rest his soul, but it is hard for me to imagine an aging Kurt Cobain. Yeah. And that would be who would be performing at the Super Bowl? Yeah. I don't think Courtney Love could have imagined like it either, and that's why she did what she did, allegedly. I would like to see that. I would like to see that. I would like to see aging Nirvana at the Super Bowl. Yeah. I'm happy to hear the Mentos song anytime. And then the other Fair thing enough. that you said. Okay, um, bands your little sister liked. Uh, all of the ones that no, you like. No, I hate all of these bands, Coolio, actually. Blink-182, NSYNC, and Backstreet Boys, Whitney Houston. S- you and my sister, little sister could have had a rock and dance party. Um, Smashing Maybe. Pumpkins, Dave Matthews, and Crash Test Dummies. Okay. Uh, I'm a little bit offended. Do you know that I like really like the Smashing Pumpkins as a young person and saw them like I didn't know that, times. but it doesn't surprise me even slightly. I'm offended. You, you now are you 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 fit my mental picture sister. of what a Smashing Pumpkins fan is. I'm gonna let that. Well, one go if by. if you like the band, JD, wear it as a badge of pride. Do you have the T-shirt? Yeah, but Do, like were you, you one of those kids who had, had the purple Smashing Pumpkins T-shirt? You did, didn't you? What I did, all the all the kids like Smashing Pumpkins when I went to school. I had these stupid purple concert T-shirts that they got at something, and they were all the. Well, I didn't go to any concerts in England. You know that's okay. the problem. Yeah, um, but yeah, I'd like to see the Smashing Pumpkins, but only if they play kind of melancholy and before. I don't want them to play Is anything from Smashing Pumpkins. Weird. Not melancholy. <laughs> the album uh, stuff from Melancholy and Infant Sadness so and the stuff from the album before the Shimey Stream. So moody about it. Oh. <laughs> well, they wrote the songs when they uh-huh. weren't. You know, that's how it works. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So I'd like to see Smashing Pumpkins. I don't know what the other. What were the other uh, things you said? I believe we had Dave Matthews and Crash Test Dummies. I know nothing about Crash Test Dummies except it's not Dave Matthews, and therefore I'll go for it. The problem with Dave Matthews is that the how long is the halftime? An, an hour? Half an hour? Forty know. minutes? A Dave Matthews song is longer. That's probably than true. A Dave Matthews song fills. It's it's a weird paradox of physics. A Dave Matthews song fills any fixed amount of time plus ten minutes longer. It's than sort of like a goldfish. It just grows to fit the size that you have available, and then will eventually right. outgrow it. That uh, it will eventually yeah. outgrow it. It's exactly right. Dave Matthews band. I do not yeah. want to. I, I don't understand how you can like Smashing Pumpkins and not Dave Matthews because in my mind they are basically the same people. They couldn't be more I different. Disagree. Um, okay. <laughs> I don't even understand that comparison. Like, maybe Smashing Pumpkins was a different band no, in England? No, no, no. Same band. Than the one that we had Same here band. in America? It was... Now, I wonder if it was like a franchise. It was probably like a franchise. And they licensed the name. It was what the, This is what they did. They licensed the name in other countries to different bands. You know, and it was just sort of like, we'll see which one pops, and then we'll pick up all their music. So they licensed the name. And the English Smashing Pumpkins was some sort of Dave Matthews ripoff. Oh. But the American Smashing Pumpkins was nothing like yeah, that at all. Just, it's just... And the songs weren't about being sad so much as they were about being sad and angry. You left yeah, off and the angry. Smashing Pumpkins is just yeah. the cure for people who, you know, don't do their homework. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Is that no. that? Uh, we're going to go with 
Uh, could you rank for me, please? Pearl Jam, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and REM. Yeah, I could. Uh, Pearl Jam, um, REM, and then the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And I think that that's a good, solid list, and I think I'm right about it. Yeah, I, I'll go with that. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. Um, and finally, uh, sort of 90s rock ska, which is an important genre. I think we can agree. Yeah, all right. Yeah. But don't forget that a lot of the ska that I listened to in the 90s, you're unfamiliar with because a lot of the ska that I listened to was Christian ska. I'm sorry. There's a subgenre of Christian ska? <laughs> you, if you can think of a musical genre, you have to imagine that um, if you get, especially in the 90s, I'm not so sure if this is still true today, but if you can think of a musical genre, you have to understand that there were uh, that there was a Christian record label ready to quickly, quickly create a version of it that evangelical kids' parents would let them That's listen That's amazing. To. I'm going to find me some yeah. Christian ska. Um, <laughs> a lot of our listeners, I think a lot of our listeners uh, like the Supertones and uh, and and uh, the Insiders and Five Iron Frenzy. And okay. Well, uh, well then that, it will be easy for you then to rank for me, please. Less than Jake, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, and Real Big Fish. Mm, it will. Less than Jake, Real Big Fish, the Mighty that Mighty Boss That is the correct Tones. order. Well done. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. We'll be back next week with some trombones.